Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. So, Paul, here we are again. Looks like the the boys are teasing us a little bit by putting out a new song for us to have a listen to. It was last week, I guess it was now that, that they played the new sing or new song at least. Give it all up over in America. What were your thoughts on that one then? Yeah, I mean, I like. I think they hinted that they were going to do that between now and October. Just kind of drip feed people maybe two or three songs. It's interesting. I don't. It kind of took me by surprise a wee bit because I. I don't think there was the same build-up to it as there was for Invisible. It's taken me a few listens to, and every time I listen to it, I keep thinking, it's one of those songs that's, I kind of feel I'll judge it better within the context of the whole album and how it sits within the, the track listing. Because what I ended up doing was I'd listen to it and then immediately listen to Invisible. And then I would listen to Invisible and then immediately listen to Give It All Up. So actually what I found was listening to Give It All Up and then straight into Invisible. It kind of sounded as if, yeah, you could see whether they do sit next to each other on the track list and you could see that would work. And also, I didn't, I wasn't sure if it felt like, or it sounded like that would be the final version or the final mix or whether when we get the album, then, because obviously from when they've recorded that, then there's still going to be a few months of working that, I don't know if it still felt as if they maybe slightly tweak it, I think. But I, no, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought it was okay, but, but I kind of got the impression and, and I think there were some comments on Twitter as well that I saw that it will be interesting to see if maybe they were just kind of testing the market so to speak and I just wonder if it will actually end up in the album you know when it comes time for it to be released because it seemed to be it was either a it was a Marmite kind of song wasn't it that people either loved it or hated it apart from me I was a bit wishy-washy about it I thought it was thought it was okay I thought Simon's voice was really good on it and I don't know if it was just there's no way that he was singing live. I'll say that. But I, it sounded like, a, you know, it was really strong and, and I liked his voice in it. I felt like it was just a little bit kind of old man, easy rock. So I, I don't know if, if that's going to be the vibe on, on the whole album. But uh, yeah, he looks too damn comfortable standing there on that stage. Because I think somebody made an interesting comment actually to our Twitter feed, a girl called Cindy Collar. And she said that it's certainly the start of it. There was almost a kind of James Bond theme to it, just the way the music starts and he starts singing. And as soon as as soon as I read that comment, I thought, you know, she's absolutely right. That's what it, that's that kind of that vibe early on. 
and and I think the more I think it's like a lot of songs. The more you listen to it, the more you start to get into it. But I certainly it certainly it jumped out at me less than Invisible, and I feel it's if it does, it's interesting that I hadn't even thought of that until you mentioned it that it might not even be on the album, but it did feel like a very much an album track to me. It'll be interesting to see what they do over the next couple of months if they do any more appearances and putting the other songs out. I think that seems to be the the plan that they're going to just slowly kind of drip feed a song here, a song there, just to kind of give people, I was going to say give people a taste of what the new album's like, but I I get the feeling that it's going to be quite diverse in terms of the sound. So actually, maybe that's just, I think you said it, testing the water to see what people think about it. I mean, from my perspective, because obviously I've been away from Duran Duran for quite a number of years, and it's only, you know, I've only come back doing this podcast, but I imagine there will be a massive audience out there that, that has kind of lost face with, with Duran Duran and maybe they have figured out quite cleverly that they do need to drip feed information and new songs out to the world just to build up that momentum to release the album. I'm sure that they'll be under tremendous pressure from their record company to you know deliver the goods when the album is finally released. So they have to build up the momentum some way. I don't think they, they could have just gone like first of October release date bam, released the whole album to an unsuspecting audience because it just might not be big enough to make the splash that they need it to make. I think it just leaves you intrigued as to what, what the new album is going to sound like overall. I agree. I think um, it's definitely keeping us occupied and, and giving us new stuff to talk about because we, we're quite happy to talk about all things Duran Duran, which um, brings us to what the podcast is about uh, in the main tonight is uh, talking about big things. Uh, this was their fifth studio album, so we're starting to get into the, the nuts and bolts, I think, of, of Duran Duran, and it was uh, released in October 1988. I had totally forgotten about this album, to be perfectly honest, and it was only when I started listening to listening to the stuff again, I'm like, oh God, yeah, this is bringing back so many memories. October 88, I would have been 18 years old, hitting the, the discotheques of, of Hollywood, and I do remember definitely dancing to um, to some of these when I was out at uh, Florentine Gardens and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, it's got some uh, pretty fond memories for me. What about yourself? Yeah, because I think I said in the last podcast, what I try and do now is think back to what age I was when the album came out. So I was 22 at the time. So I would have been in third year uh, at college. And again, similar to, I think the last one was Notorious. I was at college, but then, I, I mean, obviously I bought the album but I don't think it made an impression on me at the time. I think it was more a purchase of habit that when a new Duran Duran album came out, I would, I would buy it and I would have listened to it. But I don't even think music would have been my primary interest at the time. Obviously, apart from studying, it would have been drinking football and uh, girls, not necessarily in that order. And so I'm not sure where Duran Duran would have been in the pecking order. But I think you know, certainly listening back to it, it has absolutely blown me away. I started listening to it even before preparation for this episode when we started, you know, planning the whole idea of the podcast series. And when it came to Big Thing, kind of took me by surprise in a way because I, I thought this is a, this is an extraordinary record and I can't I can't believe that at the time it didn't have that impact on me. But as I say, I think there were just too many other distractions going on that now just with the passage of time and being able to sit and just listen to it, i tell you how extraordinary it is, and we'll talk about this later on. I actually 
will praise an instrumental in this episode. Really and truly, you're you're advocating an instrumental. Not advocating. I'm 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 just saying that I like I liked it because, and I'll give my reasons later for it anyway. But um, I think it's an extraordinary album. I really do. It's you know we've mentioned about getting people to start thinking about where they place their albums, and we'll, we'll do like we podcast interviews with people after Future Past is out, getting them to rate their top five. And so it's going to be difficult, I think, for people. But I would say, I absolutely say that Big Thing is one of the ones that is definitely in my top five. Where it will be, I'm actually not sure. But it is, it's really, it's, for me, it's up there with the best things that they've done. You know, it did kind of, I guess it sort of passed me by as well at the time. Um, I think I had other priorities sort of similar to, to the ones that you had, not the girls, but the boys. So, so yeah, I... I don't even think I bought the album, to be perfectly honest, back then. I'm sure my older sister had it, and I probably just stole her cassette and made a copy of hers. So, yeah, I don't even remember buying it. But I do really, really, really like the album. But I don't know if it's more because of the nostalgia of the the memories that it has evoked. The, The singles were so strong for me at the time. You know, like I said, you know, I danced to them at a Florentine Gardens and that sort of thing. And that was just... That was kind of like my rose-tinted teenage years. You know, I was living a pretty cool life in L.A. and that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, I don't know if I'm more attributing it high up in my listing of, of Duran Duran albums just because of that, those fond memories that I had. Because, you know, as obviously we're going to talk through the track listing later on. But um, I think it's a bit of a weird album, the way that it's structured and the fact that it does have these instrumental interludes and the way they, they've mashed songs together I think it's just structurally a weird album and I'm not quite sure whether I I like or not from from that sort of perspective but I had to laugh because um this is the 1988 and what I intentionally did was I looked in the American top 40 singles chart and the UK singles chart for the beginning of October 1988 and I swear the the singles chart was just all over the shop you had Bon Jovi, you had Guns N' Roses, you had Whitney Houston, you had the Hollies. You had such a wide variety of singles that were out there, all sorts of musical types. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Duran Duran being a band that, that wants to be popular, I guess, probably just kind of went, what the hell do we do? And, you know, they, they did land upon more of a dancey sound, which I think is, is really appropriate for the time. I think they did really, really well with it. But yeah, it must have been quite a, an interesting time for them to, to figure out which way they were, what direction they were going to go in. Yeah, because it's funny, I, I kind of did something similar, although I just looked at what the best-selling albums were from that year. And the best-selling album was Kylie Minogue's album, Kylie, which I've probably got actually as well. But um, no, I, I'm not sure. I'm a big fan of Kylie's as well, actually. What I was thinking is kind of similar to what you were kind of touching on. So, so Duran Duran would have had that rode the crest of a wave of new romantic era and, and then absolutely exploded with Rio and we're like one of the biggest bands in the world. So then they obviously had the personnel change and then they're not really, they're an established band, but they're not part of the zeitgeist as it were. And by the time October 88 came, I mean, that was just before, you know, the likes of the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and that kind of Madchester type, the late 80s, early 90s, dance music, rave music, that, kind of ecstasy culture of which those Manchester bands were at the forefront. And I wonder if that's why Big Thing maybe, it just kind of fell in between two stools. And so 
Durandji Lambert, as you said, trying to fit themselves. And maybe that's where, you know, that idea of how you thought it was quite a strange album, because some of the songs in the first side are quite dancey. But then I think the second side in particular, for me, is where you can see there's other songs, but, you know, when somebody talks about Duran Duran in terms of the musicianship and their songwriting, some of the songs on this album, I would hold up and say, that's as good as MD can write, particularly on that second side. And then maybe kind of slower ones, you know, maybe they were still trying to find their way through what was happening in the music at the time. And I just wonder if the, the record company was a bit shit scared because Notorious floundered, sorry, no, no, Notorious floundered a little bit, I think, um, with, with their single choices and that sort of stuff. So I just wonder if the record company was like, well, we don't know what to do with them either. And uh, maybe that was the reason why the second side, maybe it was more of an experimental thing but because they didn't know which way to go with it all. And, and that's why maybe it sounds a little bit disjointed to me. But I had to laugh. One of the things when I was um, doing my research, and I don't know if you noticed on the uh, the album covers and, and the, the singles covers, but they'd had like some brand marketer obviously got a hold of it and they changed the, the structure of the Duran Duran name. They took the space out and they just pushed it together. And I think it was at that point that they, um, that they had released, what do they call it? The bootleg, the LSD edit done by the Crush Brothers. And it just felt like that whole thing, maybe it was a bit of a Duran Duran were in their teenage years and let's change the, the format of their name to, to kind of spruce things up and let's do this kind of edgier bootleg type thing just to see what would happen in the market that kind of made me laugh because it felt like are they teenagers kind of thing it just seemed weird to me I mean I think it must be difficult for any band you know that you just you mentioned that's their fifth studio album and they've had you know the breakthrough album the hysteria and then obviously all the, the personnel changes and they're, they're trying to find their sound so this is a different sound from Notorious again but when I listened to it it's not the nostalgia because I say it, I got it at the time, but it, music wasn't really a focal point for me. So when I'm listening to it now, I'm just thinking they're not unfamiliar, but I'm thinking I can't believe I've not been raving about this album for years. I really do think it is that good. Based on on the comments that we've had on Twitter, people have been singing their praises, and, and you know we'll have an interview later on uh, with Jason Lent, who is a big big fan of Big Thing, isn't he? Um, and we'll include that later on in, the, in this podcast. But um, shall we kind of, as we always do, we, we put it out on uh, Twitter for people's opinions and stuff like that. So shall we go through some of the comments that we've had back through from our Twitter fans? Yeah, absolutely. I'll kick off um, with Black Country Book Girl, Blue Heart. My favorite tracks are Land, Lakeshore Driving, Drug. It's just not an album I reach for very often. I don't know why, because it's pretty good. Kind of what I think as well that, Certainly Land, I think, is a, is a stunning song. But I, again, it's, it just took me by surprise. And, you know, you mentioned talking to, to Jason Lent, his uh, Rebel Music on Twitter. And I think partly as well, talking to him. And again, I'd listened to the album in advance of doing that interview. I was so glad that it kind of reintroduced me to the brilliance of it. And I don't know why, as I said, I don't know why it wasn't in my consciousness as opposed to other Duran Duran albums. But suddenly, having listened to it, as I say, it's just rocketed. And the top five, and Jocelyn, Jocelyn, right up there. I think it has to be said. You can almost be like a, a radio DJ, <laughs> the position and on your your latest album chart pop pickers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just practice that. But <laughs> one of the other comments 
was from Jan Whitham. Two of the tracks that she chose was Too Late, Marlene. Although I would always say Marlene, but that was too many years of watching Only Fools and Horses in the UK. And the other song was Palomino. Jan says both utterly beautiful tracks. And she was on to say, memories of seeing the gig at Bournemouth in 1989, the time of lycra, floral or fluorescent colours and headbands. Those were the days. When I saw that comment, I was just like, oh my God, I obviously lived with this girl because I remember I had, and I was so proud of this outfit that I had. It was like the fluorescent orange top socks. I had fluorescent yellow top, fluorescent green trousers. And then of course I had to have all the Madonna rubber bracelets as well. My God, what a look. (laughs) At least you wouldn't get lost in the dark. (laughs) Probably wasn't even allowed out after dark. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, Jan's comments just really do go back to the fact that they're great for bringing back these sorts of memories. Even though I wasn't in the the UK at the time, uh, 1988-89, but, you know, I can totally see in picture what that time would have been like for. So that's brilliant. Then um, a couple of other, our other friends, Rhonda and Amanda, who run the really cool Bailey Durani site and podcast, what they had to say was when I first heard this album, I can't say it was among my favorites. So different from the others. Now, though, the B-side seems like such a gift. One of the band's watershed moments that I've ever heard. Land, again, and Palomino, again, are among their best written songs. I would totally agree with that. Every note that was taken for every song, particularly as you go into the B-side of the album, everyone I just kept praising more and more. I'm thinking that's just song after song. was just, wow, this is brilliant. I mentioned Cindy Collar earlier on, just talking about the new song, but she had also more slightly lukewarm on this album. She said, big thing for me is where the period of Duran music I'm not thrilled about starts. It was the first album in which I didn't love every track. The remix of Drug is better than what was originally on the album. It has a mixed bag of great tracks and eh, tracks. And I think, because I, I know you've said a couple of times that there was a period where you kind of, I'm not sure if, well, you said for fell out of love with the band, but I think just you kind of drift away. And I think a lot of people have done that, that there's a period of absolute fanaticism and just height and fandom. And then it kind of dissipates. But then something or some album or song seems to drag us all back again. And, and I think, I suppose, if you've got five, well, 14 albums at the moment over 40 years, it's impossible to like everyone at the same level. That There will be peaks and troughs of what you like and what you don't like in terms of their output. But what I think I do find interesting, though, is, you know, in previous podcasts that we've done, we've had Twitter comments to say, you know, this is the album that made me a fan. This was when I, when I really got into being a Durani. I don't think we got any sort of comments like that on Big Thing. So I think that, that's kind of interesting. People's Duran Duran journeys didn't start with this, but then we're all rating it, you know, quite highly all these years down the line. Then the next one that we have, we've kind of talked about this already, about uh, bringing on board dance music and, and house music, that sort of thing, from Albuino Africato. They say, a great album that incorporated the house music trend that was taking over. The heavy drums and guitar made this a change of direction. Marlene, or is it Marlena? He's, well, that's the thing. He sings too late Marlene, and I thought it was maybe Marlena Dietrich. And as I say, in, in uh, Only Fools and Horses, which is the TV show, <laughs> It's uh, Marlene, I'm not going to say it in a kind of Cockney accent, but that's Boise's wife. So if somebody had said to me before listening to the, the song, I would have said, too late, Marlene. 
we'll leave it open to everybody's own interpretation. <laughs> and they go on to say that Marlene Land and Palomino stand out. Drug, I'll say nothing but horrible. Two interludes, why? And I thought for sure you must, nope. I thought maybe it was actually you, Paul. <laughs> no, to, to be honest, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think the I think the interludes are pointless. It's the it's the instrumental at the end of the album that I'm giving a thumbs up to. Fair enough. But uh, they gave a final rating of a seven out of ten. So still a pass. Well it was interesting that we had a seven out of ten for the album and then Alex Rice, he's given it an eight and a half out of ten. And he says the fifteen year old me loved this album. I found an old file of facts recently and I'd rated all my tapes. Big thing scored highly. And then he says, sorry, Debbie Gibson. And he'd actually sent us a picture. And it was a, a page on his Philofax, which obviously dates him back to the 80s. And he'd rated Debbie Gibson's Out of the Blue album at 5 out of 10. He'd rated Aztec Camera's Love album 8 out of 10, which is a decent rating for a, a great album, a great band. And then rated Big Thing 8.5 out of 10. And All She Wants Is remains one of his favourite Duran Duran tracks. David O, one of our best Durannies, guy fans of Duran, he says about Big Thing, a DD top three favorite. Oh, and I like the way that he, he spelled favorite in the American way. Maybe the best sequencing they've ever done. The second side is absolutely magical, with far and away my favorite B-side ever of theirs. Pretty high praise. I think, you know, David does like to, to speak very highly of Duran Duran anyways, but uh, that's pretty damn high praise for an album. I think you'd sent me another couple here. One from, well, Scooby Snacks 23. He says, mm, this is a middle of the group rating as it feels urgent, not deep or layered. I can see the house music influences, but glad to have the guitar slide into Lakeshore Driving. And I Don't Want Your Love, the Pettibone mix, he says, improves the album version. There's music to like, but little to love. But, you know, it's funny that, that, that he commented about the album feeling urgent because that's the way that I felt uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger was. It felt like, you know, they just wanted to quick, quick get something out. And maybe it was the fact that it, it did kind of have the attempts at house stroke dance music kind of vibe that maybe that gave it its urgency for him. I just felt actually that, you know, that's a good comparison. I think we'd spoke before that we felt Seven and the Ragged Tiger was like overproduced and, you know, maybe it was rushed or, or whatever. I, I felt it was almost like they'd taken a step, you know, Notorious was when the three of them had to kind of reform, get together again and, and try and forge a new identity for the band. And then they kind of took a step back. And then when they returned with Big Thing, they just felt there was a real confidence there that they knew they could do it. They knew they were good. And here's this brilliant batch of songs for you to listen to. It's going to be so interesting when we, when we come to the end of this run and we actually have to make our commitments and uh, put it all down there for our, our, our top albums. I can't wait to see what that's going to be like. Thank you, everybody, for submitting all those comments about Big Thing. Again, please do keep them coming. It's been such a, a great thing to have the interaction with you guys. And um, keep your comments about the albums coming through. Keep sending through your, your top three singles that you like. And, you know, like what we've just talk, been talking about, start putting together your favorite albums for one of our future podcasts. So keep them all coming. So now, Paul, I think uh, it's about time to hear from you, Rebecca. How's the history shaping up with Duran Duran? Yeah, she's, uh, I would like to say she really enjoys doing this thing. I think, as I say, I think she just does it out of a sense of duty. That's all those years that of me driving her about that, again, I'm calling in a favour. So this is Duran Duran Part 7, as read by my daughter, Rebecca. 
The Story of Duran Duran, Part 7 Duran Duran reconvened in 1988 to start working on their fifth studio album, Big Thing, which would be released in October of that year. Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes and John Taylor were once again joined on guitar by Warren Cucurullo and after going out on the subsequent tour with the band, he would become a full-time member of Duran Duran until 2001. Steve Ferrone and Sterling Campbell shared the drum parts on the album. In September, the first single for the album, I Don't Want Your Love, was released, reaching number 14 in the UK. However, it did better in the States, getting to number 4 in the Billboard Hot 100. While in Italy, it spent six weeks at number one and was Italy's top-selling single in 1988. The two subsequent singles from the album, the title track, Big Thing, and then Do You Believe in Shame, did not do so well in the charts. The Big Thing album itself reached number 15 on the UK albums chart and number 24 on the US Billboard 200, and Duran Duran toured the album throughout 1988 and 1989. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for doing this, even if it, if you slightly feel like you're under duress from your dad. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, Paul, let's uh, crack on and, and talk about the uh, the album tracks. Let's start with track one, then. Your thoughts? I think it's a great start to the album, as I'm always so keen to see what the first song on the album is. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast I put together, I think I actually retweeted it out on the, the Duran Duran Twitter feed, the uh, Spotify playlist of all the opening tracks of each of the 14 albums to date, uh, which is really interesting to, I've been listening to that quite a lot and it's quite interesting, kind of get a sense of the evolution of the band, but I think Big Thing, it's a great start to the album, I just love the, the start to the song itself, with the, the kind of drums and then straight in and there was wee hints in the song where I felt the guitars at times especially after I'd listened to the album a few times, it kind of hinted or linked to the very last song, Lakeshore Driving, which is quite heavily, obviously very heavily guitar-based. And it was just like we undercurrents of the guitar and Big Thing, which I then started to see that link between that first song and that last song. But I think it's a it's quite big and bold and kind of grabs you. I mean, the, the album takes different directions, but I, I like that as a, as a starting point to make you sit up and take notice. Yeah, I really liked it because it did have a little bit of a rockier edge. And I think, you know, it's interesting that you that you raised the point about the guitars having that thread through. I think it was at this point of the album that Warren Cucurello became a permanent uh, member of, of the band. And maybe he felt like he could actually start putting his stamp on it rather than just being a session musician. So um, I think his style definitely comes through. And yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, he, he's no lightweight when it comes to guitars. He, you know, he has a proper rocky sound to him, doesn't he? But uh, as per what I usually like to do, I was sitting there going, wow, this sounds kind of, what does this remind me of? I seem to be really falling into this thing about hearing the influences on particular songs. This one brought back, it made me smile when I thought of it. I thought it sounded a little bit like Def Leppard or Some Sugar On Me, if you know that song. And that song, I remember... I had my driver's license. I had a really cool Volkswagen Beetle. And me and my friend used to cruise up and down Ventura Boulevard in San Fernando Valley of a Friday and Saturday night. And we would blast Death Leopard pour some sugar on me. And that's just, that instantly, this song took me back there. It doesn't remind me of that song. I, I do think it's miles better than Death Leopard, to be honest. 
I, I don't want to think of that comparison. It will spoil it for me. Sorry. <laughs> that fond memories for me, so it worked for me. But but yeah, again, what I, I was approaching it, I had I put the album on and I just put my, my first impressions down. And my first impression on that one was rockier groove, like so far, exclamation point. So yeah, I think that's a, it's definitely a, a good track and definitely a great way to open up an album. So then we move on to the first single off the album, I Don't Want Your Love. And this was, and I didn't, I didn't believe it, but apparently it was the 17th single for Duran Duran. That really almost makes it sound like there were old timers in the music business, 17 singles up to this point. I suppose that's the thing. I mean, a lot of times uh, record companies, particularly if the album was quite successful or singles, they would put, it could be four or five singles sometimes off an album. So that, you know, that, even within their fifth album. But I suppose that's no surprise that, you know, they've got that many. This was one of the ones that, you know, certainly felt a bit funkier. This would be one of the ones that I could see myself dancing to. That in my book is high praise because it, it takes a lot for me to to dance because as a general rule, I think men over 30 shouldn't dance because they can't. I don't know if I've said this before, like if you ever go to like, you know, a family function, it's always been the case older people the women dance to whatever has been played in the room. The men dance to something that they're hearing in their head. That is not the same thing. So it's like there's a, there's a real lack of coordination to you. Like, oh, it's just horrific. And you just realise that you are like that person. But I, I do think that's a song that would make me... It's a toe tapper. I would definitely dance to that. and might have already in my kitchen. That is so funny because that truly explains the white man dad dance. Because you're obviously not dancing to the song that's there. You're, still, you're dancing to what's in your head. It's like every man in the in the function is in their own private silent disco. That's fantastic. Love that one. But yeah, I uh, this definitely is one that makes me want to get up and dance. Like I said earlier on the podcast, and I seem to recall um, listening to a to a Duran Duran interview recently where they were basically saying that they do love to dance. Maybe they're you know, one of the, the small minority of men who, who do still like to dance and actually dance to the song that's being played. But uh, yeah, I could totally see them just totally busting a move for this. And maybe that's the reason why even just listening to the song for me just makes me want to move as well. Because surely that must be, as a musician, you get into the beat of things and you just can't help but bop around. I think there's always been a, a dance element. I mean, it's not like men don't want to dance. Men want to do dance. It's just that they can't. That's the that's the difference. And I'm one of the people who's, who's very much aware of that. But I, I think Duran Duran have always had that kind of dance sensibilities. That, and again, that maybe goes back to the, the chic influence of particularly like, you know, John Taylor and Roger was in that, that rhythm section that they kind of formed. So they've always had that sense of wanting to have songs that, Maybe it's as simple as they want songs that people might want to dance to. Yeah. You know, like we've said already so many times, at the point of time in, in 1988, there was the start of the, the rave scene and, you know, dance music, house music, that sort of stuff. So, you know, they were definitely along the lines with that one. And then, of course, the next track that comes along, All She Wants Is, my first line on this one was another belcher from the 80s. That was just... A fantastic single. I think as well that we've mentioned this in other albums of first track strong, second track strong, and then the third, you know, it's like as you're listening to it for the first time, each song 
in its own merits and it just builds up so you start to there's a wee bit of momentum there as you're starting to think right? the standards been maintained even just the first three songs the only thing I wondered was would they bring out a song like that now with the, those kind of kind of female I don't know if it's I don't know what how you would describe the, the kind of the end those kind of I don't know if it's cries of ecstasy or I don't really know uh-huh. but you know what I mean I don't know if they would record that now that kind of backing to it yeah, it might not be the right tone of voice, I think is the kind of the phrase they use these days, isn't it? It might not go down particularly well. But then, you know, I don't necessarily know that Duran Duran bothered with that sort of stuff because, you know, Drug, the, the song on the album here, that surely must have damaged them to a certain extent, having a song called Drug, which seemed to be about drug taking. So, you know, Maybe maybe in this day and age they would still include the gasps and moans. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, th- I think it is a brilliant song. I really do. I think it's I think it was num- got to number nine in the charts over here anyway in Scotland. But I I, I think it was it's definitely it's a, it's a really strong and it's part of that the more upbeat songs. I think they kind of they seem to slow things down on the second side and it's a that's where the change of pace comes in. The first side is much more. In your face. Definitely, I agree. And it's been a while that since I've kind of talked about Duran Duran's videos, but uh, this one had a pretty strong video on it. One of the comments that I made was uh, John Taylor. He was obviously in his very lean, perhaps alleged drug mode. So he was very skinny and very pale. And uh, I thought he actually looked a little bit like Michael Jackson. One of the, <laughs> the la- latter stages of Michael Jackson's paleness that kind of made me go yeah. when I watch the video. I think everybody's going to go back and, and watch that video now just to see if that's the case. <laughs> it's uncanny. And, you know, you just never, you never saw John Taylor and Michael Jackson in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have just stumbled upon something there. Um, the, the song we were mentioning earlier on, we're not quite, well, if somebody would asked me before I'd listened to it, I would have just read it as Too Late Marlene, but Simon sings it as too late, Marlene. And then that's why I wondered, well, you know, as you mentioned, whether it was Marlene or Dietrich or uh, a tribute to Boyce's wife and Only Fools and Horses. Only Simon knows. But I, I love this song, actually, because I think the first three are quite well known. And then, again, once you get into what we maybe call album tracks, then I, I think that's when you really see the strength of the, the album. And I just, it's kind of the gentleness that drags you in. And I, I just... It's one of my favourites on the album, actually. I really I really enjoy it. I had never heard it before until I listened to the album this time around. And I thought, oh, well, maybe it'll grow on me. I'll listen to it a few more times and, and I'll see. Maybe it'll be one of those growers, not showers, so to speak. And um, I've listened to it a few more times and no, still not liking it. I just, it just feels like a filler song to me. And I had to laugh as well because... The, the wording that I used was jazzy 80s sax solo eye roll. And it just made me think of the comments that you've made in the past about, you know, there being job lots of, of <laughs> falling off a van or something like that. And all these saxophonists being able to, to be employed over this period of time. And that's what I thought when I heard the song. <laughs> See, that would have been the dying embers of that, because obviously I think uh, saxophones fell out of favor. So maybe that was the, the last was gasp of the saxophonist. Song. I think I always think of it as a kind of piano keyboard song more than anything. I'll have to go back and listen again, I think, because, you know, so many of you guys have, have said that, you know, you really rate it as one of your, your favourites on the album. So I'll give it another go, but I don't hold out much hope for that one. 
And what about the, what's the last song in the first side? Drug brackets. It's just a state of mind. Close brackets. Yeah. I have to say, you know, I know that there was a lot of argy-bargy amongst the, the band on this one because John liked the original mix that was done and the rest of the band liked the, the remix that, that ultimately went out on the album. But from what I was reading, it was to the point that, that John felt so strongly about it that he was threatening to leave the band over this difference of opinion. So I think it was then in subsequent uh, re-releases of the album that they stuck both versions onto the album. So I thought I would do a little experiment and I actually listened to the mixes one after the other. Call me a heathen, but I didn't really see that much difference between the two of them. What was I missing? I only listened to the, the original album version. And I think this would be, for me, the weakest of the songs on the album. But I think it's in relative terms because I still like it as a song, but I that would be the one that, if, for example, if somebody said, if you, if you could just change one song in that album or what would be the one that you drop, that is the one that, that is very much an album track. And I, I think it's the one that stands out least for me. I still like it because I think within the album, and I think maybe just the kind of more up-tempo side one, it finishes that off quite well before you turn over the, the album and it's a completely different tactic one. So I like it, but I don't I don't love this track, I have to say. Yeah, I, I agree. I, but you're right. It, it does fit on, on the first side. And it kind of puzzled me as well. Were, were they being deliberately provocative by giving it the song name of drug? Because originally it was called Take Me. And, you know, were they trying to feed into the, the burgeoning rave scene and trying to be down with the kids, whatever the, the phrase would have been back in that point in time. But I just felt it was it was a bit of a misstep by doing that. And, and whether they were, I don't know what point they were trying to make by including that one, but there you go. I don't know that, that we'll have, ever have the answer to that one. I don't remember there being any, too much negativity or adverse reaction to it, maybe because it was just an album track. If they tried to bring something like that as a single, it may have caused more controversy. Interesting. Well, yeah, I think I think we've come to the to the decision that you know that the first side was definitely dancey and, and was of the moment. Let's take a little bit of a break here and have a listen to some of the, the snippets of uh, Velvet Rebel music, uh, Jason Lent, on what his thoughts were on Big Thing. Yeah, I th- I think it was a weird time in music. I think the band kind of. They established themselves as a more serious, they really put their talent forward on Notorious. And I think the record label started like Skin Trade, Meet El President, they didn't chart as high maybe. So I think the record label panicked a bit and said, you know, we have this band that we've been making so much money off of. And I don't think they knew how to market Big Thing. And I think that's really why it didn't get the attention it deserved. I mean, you know, they used that Crush Brothers moniker to throw off DJs and critics early when they sent out uh, the LSD edit, uh, trying to be something that they weren't. Uh, and that was all record label. Bands don't think of that stuff. And Thompson Twins had to do the same thing. They released that great song, Come Inside, but it was sent to DJs as a band called Feedback Max. And it's almost like the labels were like, oh, we don't know how to market this, so we'll just give it a different name and maybe it'll catch on. And everything about Big Thing works. I mean, if you had just given it the proper marketing and support, I think people would realize, damn, this band can play. They're writing great songs. The drums on I Don't Want Your Love, Big Thing, Steve Rowan brought so much to that. I know Sterling Campbell plays on some songs and 
eventually joined the band on a full-time basis. But for me, uh, Steve on drums is up there with Tony Thompson. And I think I Don't Want Your Love is one of the band's best tracks in terms of drums. It seemed to me like it should have been a bigger hit album. I am one of those people, though. There's one song I would change on it, and that is uh, either version of Drug just doesn't work for me. And then they have this B-side, I Believe All I Need to Know, uh, which might be one of the most beautiful songs the band's ever written. Uh, I was just listening to it again last night, and I just shake my head. I'm like, how did that not make the final cut? If that was on the album, I'd probably put Big Thing in my three favorite albums of all time from Duran Duran. Which is funny, I, I was speaking to David Orwick, David O, who's, you know, guy fans of Duran on Twitter, oh, yeah. and, and that was, that song was one of his top three, which again, you know, and, and then when you, as you say, when you listen to it again, you think, wow, that is, that is a, a brilliant song. But I, I'm always interested as well that, you know, the way an album starts, the first two or three songs, and, and I, oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought that, but even with the first album, as a new band, that's, there was really three strong songs in their first album, I think on Big Thing. You know, you've got big thing, I don't want your love, all she wants is. It's just like, boom, boom, boom. And you're, yeah. you know, if you're not taking after those first three songs, I'm not sure, you know. I'm and sure I wonder sometimes, to. the big things, uh, seven inch edit was a lot more dancey and pop. I wonder if people may have been more receptive to the album if it opened with that instead of the more rocking version on the album. Personally, I like the version on the album. I think it, you know, just the opening snare intro, it just, you immediately have to pay attention. And then the way the album ends on a snare hit and just disappears quickly. I mean, the beginning and the end of the album are really something unique. And the stuff in between, there's so much great stuff. Too Late Marlene, you know, Palomino. There's some beautiful, more atmospheric ballads in there, but you still have their high energy dance stuff. All she wants is, I mean, the video alone makes me love that song, but I think it's a great, great club song. So it, it's weird that that album doesn't get more attention. I feel like people do appreciate Notorious for as great as it is. And maybe because now Rogers is involved and there wasn't any big names, so to speak, and big thing. But I think this is one of those albums when people go back and listen to, it's going to be like, oh, wow, why didn't I give this more of my attention back then? Because this is a great record. That, you know, like similar to the other interviews, Molly, that's, we'll put that full interview as a, as a bonus episode. And it's a brilliant chat. Jason is brilliant to talk to. You know, not just about Big Thing, but about Duran Duran and music in general. Absolutely fascinating. And it's definitely worth a listen to that when we, when we put that out. Yeah, I agree. And have a listen to that one. I really enjoyed it because um, it's nice to... He's obviously a musician himself. And it's nice to, to kind of have validation that Duran Duran are a band that other musicians like to listen to as well so yeah I thought his his insight and, and the stuff that you guys talked about was was a great interview so definitely listen out for that one guys so if we move on to uh side two tracks what are we all thinking about that one I thought you know like like we've said we kind of feel like it's a, a bit of a, a change in pace from side a the first song on, on side two do you believe in shame I think do You Believe in Shame is one of the best Duran Duran songs they've ever written. I can't believe that, I think it was the third single, and I think it only got to number 30 over here, and I think number 72 in the States, which I find extraordinary, because I think it's an amazing song. I, I think it's really moving. I saw, I can't remember, maybe a few years ago, they did a, it's almost like one of these Unplugged-type events. I can't remember what it, it was for one of the albums, I'm sure. And that was one of the songs that they played. I think Simon's, obviously, it's a personal song 
think it relates to a friend of his who died. I think his voice is really moving. You can tell that there's a lot of emotion in the way he's singing that song. You mentioned there a bit about musicians maybe appreciating Duran Duran. And I know when, for example, when Ordinary World came out, a lot of people kind of sat up and thought, wow, these guys can write. I think when you hear Do You Believe in Shame, for me, it's, that was the same reaction. It was interesting they were saying that I think at the time there was some people, I don't know if there was some sort of legal dispute, there was a song called Susie Q that I think somebody called Dale Hawkins and then Creedence Clearwater Revival did a version and you can hear the kind of similarities and melodies. But they, I think they said it was just like a, was a sort of blues, I think they called it a basic blues progression on it. So I, I, and I think that's, that's the nature of music. But I, I think what a song to start the second side of any album. I have to agree when I heard it, I was just blown away. And I think that it is, that is the best track on this album. And I think it's probably the best song over the previous couple of albums, even. I just think it's such a brilliant, brilliant song. And I don't know if maybe it's just me being a little bit sentimental because, you know, it is about one of Simon's friends who passed away, but it just does feel like it has so much meaning to it. And it's just a lovely, lovely sound to it all. You know, I think it's, it's definitely going to be one that's going to enter into the normal rotation of my day-to-day listening of music. It was one of the ones, remember, when we did the top three, and it was always like a lot of people, you had, you had different songs vying for your thought. That was one of the ones that was vying for my top three, because it'd be interesting to do that again, because obviously you listen to some songs more at a certain time, and suddenly you go, oh, what about that one and that one? So, but choosing three songs from my catalogue is an impossibility anyway, but I mean, I think they set the benchmark high for the start of the, the second side of that album. And I don't think they let it drop for the rest of the big thing. Because I think Palomino, which follows it, for me, again, Simon's vocals are stunning on it. I think confirms their ability as songwriters. I think it is another... But I, I think I just kept writing a brilliant song, another brilliant song, another brilliant song. Because it just it just felt like everyone was just like, boom, boom, boom. Here you are. Here's, do you like that one? Here's another brilliant one. And it was like, there's no end to this. It's like they were on a roll and like, yeah, 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 keep coming, keep coming. Yeah, I, I thought um, I liked the song, but I think, you know, Do You Believe in Shame was such a strong song that, that maybe I felt like it would have been hard to to follow a song like that. But, uh, you know, you mentioned about the strength of the song and I had to laugh. Simon was has been asked over the years, you know, what, what the song meanings were and that sort of stuff. And he, he's come out with a couple of different variations as to what Palomino was about. And it made me laugh. I just wonder, he must get so bored in the course of doing all the bazillion interviews that they must have to go through that he just ends up coming up with whatever pops into the top of his head. That's what I would say the song is about, just to kind of mess with everybody's heads. And I think that's, you know, Palomino could be about goodness knows what. So yeah, I think one of those typical Simon just wants to put words together to make it sound good. It doesn't really have any meaning in reality. I just think, you know, I was saying earlier on that I kind of felt with this album that they they were quite sure-footed. They kind of were sure of themselves as, as songwriters, as musicians, and they wanted to show it. It wasn't overproduced. It wasn't, there wasn't too much noise. It, was, it just seemed perfect. And again, I think throughout the whole album, but certainly the second side, the word I kept thinking of was confidence. They were really confident in what they were doing. That's why it's a shame that it wasn't a bigger hit at the time. And I think mentioning Ordinary World and, and then the Wedding Album, which we'll talk about in a future episode, 
you know, if a single or if it'd been one song that had kind of taken off the way Ordinary World had, I think we'd have been a greater appreciation for Big Thing because people would then have gone and listened to the, the body of work that it came from. But I just felt that it was they were really confident in what they were doing and believed in what they were doing and knew they were good at it. But then we come to interlude one. What the hell? I think I just wrote down, let's move on quickly under that one. <laughs> it's, it's just nothing. It's just like... I don't see the point of it, so I have nothing yeah, to it, say on it. Yeah, and, and, you know, we may as well bag it up with the flute interlude as well. Again, you know, I don't really understand the point of that one. And, you know, whilst I totally agree with you about the confidence they seem to be demonstrating over the course of this album, but what were these interludes? I would really, I would love to, if anybody can find any interviews or be able to speak to the band to find out what it is, I would be so interested to see why. Do you know the only thing that I thought it was almost like they were letting people take a breather in between the brilliant songs? So you start off with Do You Believe in Shame and Palomino? And then before they, they follow that up with Land, which is another stunning song, they're almost like right, giving you a wee chance to kind of prepare yourself or just take in what you've heard. And then they just have that 45 seconds of nothingness. And then bang, another amazing song. And you're going, wow, where did that come from? And then they give the flute interlude. And again, it's just very, very short. You take a wee breath and then bang, there's another amazing song. It's just a theory, obviously. There's got to be some reason behind it all. I want to know what it is. Please, please tell me now. <laughs> oh, that was really bad. I apologize. So bad. I'll quickly move on then to, uh, to the next song, Land. And what do you I think of that? Yeah, I, I quite liked it. Um, it had kind of a, a hippie-ish sort of vibe to it all. And I've always been um, partial to a little bit of hippiness going on in, in my music. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. But it got me thinking. I was I was reading the, the lyrics and it's a lot about sea things and, and, and that sort of stuff. And I remember back in the day, it was all in the news when Simon was racing his yacht and it overturned and he almost drowned. And I, I was curious to see the timeline when that happened and when this album was done. The yachting accident was in 85 and this album obviously came out in 88, but I just wonder if you know his love of, of the sea and, and his floating experience kind of influenced his, his lyrics on this one. It's funny, it's not something, I, I don't really check the lyrics I've said to you before. Um, I mean, I think his vocals again, you can tell he's at the top of his game. And I love the way it starts, that it's not him that starts the song. It's like the female voices, and then it kind of blends into it. I didn't realise until, again, we are just checking, apparently this is the only song from Big Thing that they've never performed live, apparently. So they, they, mustn't, they, couldn't, have, they couldn't have been part of the set list for the tour that, that they toured that album with, which is a shame. Because I think it would be quite a nice thing for them to do when they do go back. And again, I think we touched on this before, of maybe just dipping into that body of work and producing, you know, you go to, say you go to see them live and they play that, and a song that maybe we would never thought we would hear live, just those wee surprises that, and songs that, you know, you've forgotten the, in the passage of time. But for me, it just, again, at the risk of repeating myself, it was just another song. It just it followed on from the first two brilliant songs, and it was part of that, I don't know if melancholic is the right word, but it was definitely, there was a sense of, kind of they'd slowed things down for the second side. So everybody would, everybody danced their hearts out to the first side and then they could 
chill out for the second. So maybe yeah, it was a kind of microcosm of the rave culture. Maybe it was, and, and you know, maybe you're you're absolutely right in your theory of that. You know, that was it was just done in steps. You know, we, we they put the brakes on with you know shame, and then you know then they had the interludes, so they took it down a notch, and then they moved into to Palomino and, and land, and yeah, maybe it is. This is the come down after the rave. So so yeah, that sounds like a plausible theory, and I, I like that one. I'll stick with that one. Good job, Paul. <laughs> So if we're skipping, if, if we want to brush over the flute interlude. Please do. <laughs> Please do. So yeah, we move into um, the edge of America and Lakeshore Drive. And again, it's a weird structure because it's, you know, kind of the instrumental that flows into the song, but it then ends, it's quite rocky again. So it's almost like, you know, we've had the, the dancey bit, then we've had the calm down and oh, time to, we've had another hit. Let's go get the dance floor again. Yeah, because it's funny, I when I first listened to it, you know that way up, because I wasn't really paying attention to the track listings, and I just knew each song was different. So the first couple of times I listened to it, I just thought it was the one song. I just thought that, you know, the Edge of America then, which is a brilliant title for a song, and, you know, when they, they get to that point where they just blend straight into the, the rocky guitars, I just thought that was just how the song finished, and it was like a two or three minutes of, of music, and it was only... When I then went and was looking more specifically at the, the track listing, that I realised it was a different song and thought, oh no, I actually quite like that. But I think it's because, although it is an instrumental, I think it does feel like it's just the one song. So I think that's why I, I like it. I also feel by the time it gets to that, I am almost predisposed to liking it because I've enjoyed listening to everything else so much that... Um, I'm thinking this is just what a, what a wonderful musical experience. So I'm just embracing it, even though in my head I'm thinking I've told you so many times that instrumentals aren't for me. But I think if they had if they hadn't called it Lakeshore Driving, they just called it Edge of America. I think people wouldn't have batted an eyelid. Maybe this will make you a convert to, to instrumentals. And, no. And, no. <laughs> <laughs> Man, even Duran Duran can't change your mind. You'll have the you'll give them this one, but uh, you're not budging on that then. Well, well, listen. I uh, I'll probably I'll probably change like the the seasons in the course of of the other podcast as well. I'll suddenly hear another instrumental and go, oh, yeah, I quite like that. Because the other thing I I thought as well that the as I say that it, it's quite slow Edge of America. And again, I've I've mentioned that I think particularly the second side of this album, Simon's vocals are just top notch. I think he's really really brilliant and real emotion in singing them. When I was saying how the the guitar on Big Thing made me think of the guitar at Lakeshore Driving, and I think that's maybe where they almost bookend the album. Maybe it just kind of makes it almost circular as well, and maybe that would then, yeah, inspire you just to go to circle back and listen to the whole album all over again. You know, like it suddenly stops abruptly, but apparently that was because they ran out of tape. So I'd seen an answer. It was, an, it was actually on the official Duran Duran website, and they sometimes do something, I think it's Ask Katie. It's a girl who works with the band and they'll ask her, she asks the band different questions and that was one of them. And I think I think Nick had said it simply was that when they were recording it, they just ran out of tape. So I think there is a version which is a full version, but the one on the album, it just stops. I quite like that as well. It just suddenly doesn't fade out. It's just suddenly, boom, that's it. Because at first, you, again, you're thinking, especially when you listen to vinyl, you think, did that jump? Did the needle jump? You know, and then you go back and you play it again and then you're not quite sure. Is that a mistake or is it, you know, is there something wrong with my record? And Or do you think maybe Nick is just yanking our chain? Because surely 
being the sort of musicians that they are and the professionals that they are, they're not going to go, oops, we just ran out of tape and we're still going to put it on an album. I think that was a deliberate move and that was a statement that they wanted to make. It may be what you were saying earlier on is that they just, whatever the question is, it just depends what mood they're in, what the answer will be. I'm sure maybe there's another interview where he gives a different answer. Maybe so. Maybe, maybe one day. Duran Duran will, will actually catch a drift of, of our little podcast here and we'll be able to actually ask these questions ourselves to the band. That's, that's the dream, isn't it? Wouldn't that be great? So, yeah, that's the Big Thing album. And uh, it's been an interesting ride and, and I'm so glad that we got to it and it reminded me of, of just how good the album is. I think probably where we'll finish off then is uh, Russell Morris, one of uh, our Twitter podcast listeners has contributed his top threes so again I'll, I'll put out the plug please do keep sending those in for us I think we've got a couple lined up to go already but uh, you know we still have 12 more podcasts at least to talk about albums so there's still plenty of opportunity for everybody to get in with their with their top three choices so please do yeah Duran Duran at paulcuddehy.com we put all the details on the the show notes for the podcast are also at Albums Duran on Twitter. You can get in touch with us. So, yeah, as, as you say, Molly, the more the merrier. Hi, I'm Russell Morris, and this is my top three Duran Duran songs. I first got into Duran Duran when Planet Earth came out in 1981. However, it wasn't until Rio's single came out in late 82 that my appreciation went up a level. The single just blew my mind with how the different band members can be heard throughout the mix at different times throughout the 5 minutes 40 seconds, the album version of course, to form one perfect union of sound. The keynote Nick Rhodes synthesizers, Andy's rock riff cutting through a fantastic rhythm section from John and Roger, it has all the components that Duran became famous for throughout their career. Also, the Rio cover just captured a moment that remains timeless. As one of the best singles bands of all time, this is Duran Duran at their very best. I could have picked another single, but as a top three, I wanted to go for a song that has great depth and ends an album that was a renaissance for the band. Sin of the City uses atmosphere, from a busy street hustle including car sirens, the groove builds, with great driving guitar from Warren Cucurullo. Simon's semi-rapping mantra creates a social statement about how 87 people died in an arson attack in New York in 1990. For a band that tends to stay away from social comment, this track shows how over a 40-year period they have created such a great variety of music. Duran Duran are one of the best bands with regard to album closers. Think Tel Aviv and The Chauffeur at the beginning of their career, to Before the Rain and The Universe Alone from their most recent albums. The final song in my top three would be Secret October, the B-side of The Union of the Snake. I wanted to select a deep cut to show the great diversity across the band's catalogue. Back in the 1983, it was just frustrating to have to play the 7-inch single every time I wanted to listen to the track. But it was always worth it. I've always leant towards Simon and Nick with regards to the Duran Duran sound, and when Arcadia came along I was so happy. Secret October highlights Duran Duran's effortlessness with a melody, and how even within their deeper cuts, they always have gems. Land, Palomino, My Antarctica, Cry Baby Cry, the list goes on. Thanks to Paul from the Duran Duran Albums podcast, keep up the great work.
So thank you guys for contributing uh, with your interviews and your song choices. Any last thoughts on the album, Paul? Well, as I said to you, I think, uh, well, not not I think, I know it is one of, you know, when it comes to doing the top five, which you and I will both do, once Future Past is out, and, and I think once we give each other, give yourself a chance to have a, a real listen to it, so you, you put that in its proper perspective within the 15 albums. I would say just now that Rio and Big Thing are, are definite in my top five. Rio always was going to be there because of the age I was when I listened to it. And I, again, when I listen to it now, I think it's stunning, every song. But I, I think the same with Big Thing. I think it's maybe one of Duran Duran's most underrated albums. Certainly deserved, I think, to be more successful. But also, I think, deserves to be more appreciated. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm so glad that this podcast has given me the opportunity to to rediscover this album. And uh, yeah, I think it, it's going to feature within my top five. I think there's there's not going to be any mistake about that one. But um, yeah, it's interesting that we, we've come to the band is, you know, pretty well established at this point in time. And, you know, they kind of fell off people's radars. But this really it should have brought them right back to where, you know, the levels that they had when they, when they first came out. So it's good that we were able to reignite that flame for, for this album. So everybody go out and listen to it again. Yeah. And it'll be interesting as well. I think when we're doing the next podcast and we take it on two years and I think Liberty is the next one, whether we think the band progressed from big thing, because I don't, I'm not sure if Liberty's one of the most highly Rated or praised albums amongst Duran Duran fans? Yeah, we'll put it, we'll have to put it out to Twitter, see what everybody's thoughts are, and, and what, you know, we'll include that in the next podcast. The other thing I was going to mention as well, we mentioned in the last, uh, last podcast about possibly doing one on non album tracks. What I was thinking, like once you and I have kind of decided roughly on a maybe 10 that we would talk about, maybe we'll put it out to Twitter and then people can give their thoughts on that and whether there's some that we've missed out that are maybe are obvious. I think the only proviso is because when I was doing a wee bit of research for this, there's quite a few songs floating in the ether that were part of the astronaut sessions and there's various versions, but it's songs I think that the band have officially released, you know, whether they were on just the, you know, for example, there was a song on the, the Japanese issue of Red Carpet Massacre, I think Cry Baby Cry. So it has to be an official release, not something that the band have maybe recorded, but they've never released. But it'd be interesting to see if we give people a, a kind of, starting point and then once we've got like almost like an album of non-album tracks we could do something on that yeah yeah cool it just seems like they do seem to be a band that does an incredible amount of new work for their b-sides and and that sort of thing so yeah there's bound to be a a huge volume of, of these sorts of tracks to to get through and choose from absolutely cool good stuff well thank you everybody for listening and um as per usual, send us your comments, send us your thoughts, and we'll share them. So thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Albums Duran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast, and in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound.